Bendigo Business Stories podcast, produced by B Bendigo, acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to our Mental Health and Wellbeing series as part of the Bendigo Business Stories podcast, proudly produced by B Bendigo and supported by the Victorian Government. Wellbeing at work is becoming increasingly important for a new generation of post-pandemic workers. Join me, your host Kimberly Finesse, as we talk to local experts, leaders and business operators about stories of wellbeing, resilience and good business practices. More and more professionals, and especially micro and small business owners, often operate from the heart of their home. Their path is not without challenges. The isolation, the self-reliance, the financial struggles, and the constant juggling of work, personal, and family life. It's a tough balancing act. That's where this podcast comes in. We're here to tell their stories and to recognize what it takes to not only survive, but thrive in business. We look forward to introducing you to our special guests. Hello, Alison. Thank you for joining me as our guest to talk about the issues that impact women's mental health and how that is linked to gender inequity as part of our mental health and wellbeing series. Thanks very much for having me along. It's a pleasure. Women's health is quite broad. You know, there could have been so many spots that we sat in and and discussed. And when you sent through some dot points, I'm like, oh, wow, this is a lesson. I'm going to sit here, just learn and soak it up. Well, I think that's probably one of the joyful things about working in women's health is it is so broad and I feel like every day I am learning something or sharing something. Uh, It's not meant to be a lesson, but (laughs) I hope that it will be informative and people will take something um, good away from it. Absolutely. You work as the mental health lead at Women's Health Loddon Mallee, which is in Bendigo. Team of 20, you cover an extraordinary part of Victoria. So we're talking Central Goldfield, Mildura, Swan Hill, Echuca. Yeah, there's 10 local government areas there. So, and there are, you know, regional local government areas are all quite big. So, uh, yeah, it's a huge um, region um, and it's, there's lots of uh, women in it. Um, and it's a real pleasure to work for Women's Health Lord Mallee. So, yeah, our office is based in Bendigo, but our work does cover the whole region. What attracted you to this industry? Um, I had previously been working in men's mental health and I, um, I had also worked previously in disability and social inclusion and my contract had finished uh, with this particular, with a particular organisation and I was really excited by the um, position that came up with Women's Health. It was really, a, a, it's an organisation led by women for women. It, um, it deeply understands um, positive workplace culture and um, it, it just is doing such amazing work. So all I felt like the work that I had been doing in disability inclusion, in aged care and in men and women's mental health, could all, all of those outcomes could be achieved in this mental health role. Um, and I think my natural progression of just wanting the world to be a bit kinder and brighter for everybody kind of leads me, leads me in the direction of uh, working in the mental health space. Beautiful. So one of the topics uh, that you've sent through is very closely linked to the Rochester floods. So when we talk about the floods of 2022, Rochester was one of the hardest hit towns. Uh, It it was, but, you know, every LGA in the region was hit. So um, although Rochester, we saw those, um, you know, knee-deep, waist-deep houses, um, that was happening in a a number of um, the towns across the region. So um, although some of the work that we did was in Rochester, we actually 
um, did a flood recovery program across the whole of the Loddon Valley. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's this saying that if you know one town, you know one town. And um, it's that, that was really um, came across very strongly during the floods that every town that was impacted was impacted in a different way. And the women in those towns were impacted in different ways. Um, although there were some, some common themes, which we'll talk about. It was, it's been a really interesting project to um, deliver. Absolutely. And I mean, the water receded and it, it did leave more than just the wake of, you know, property destruction. So this is where you come in to talk about that gendered impact of disaster on regional and rural women. So what we started to hear when we first um, considered doing a um, flood recovery project, we were approached by the Department of Families and Fairness and um, they knew as the peak women's organisation that we had access to women in towns. And um, what we wanted to do is make sure that as much of that money could go into those towns as mm. possible. So we, I started by doing a bit of research around other impacted um, flood communities and Lismore came up. And one of the, one of the things that really sat with me um, and I went to a webinar um, and it was talking about there not being enough opportunities for women to come together. And as we went around and started speaking to... And Rochester was one of the first towns that we did go to. So this was in about February. And we were thinking in advance of International Women's Day was coming up. So maybe we could do some, uh, you know, some work with one of the communities and put something on that would be well-received by the women in that town. Um, so I went and spoke to the amazing women at the community house there who were absolutely just... It was just so amazing to see the incredible work that they were doing um, they were their their building was flooded out and they were in with a local government agency as well as some other services so it really ended up being this like one-stop shop for people to go to which was brilliant and I went and spoke to the women and they were like <laughs> the first thing they were, when I said oh you know I'm kind of here to find out what it is that you want and, and she, they was kind of this idea of oh, we're really frustrated with people coming in telling us what we should do and, and so that was a really strong key learning. So, so no one had asked them what they need or what they want. I think that I don't think that nobody had asked them. I just don't think it perhaps had happened in that way. Assumptions mm. made. And they were like, we don't need any more tampons. We, could, <laughs> we, we really don't need any more tampons. <laughs> Lots of care packages had been sent in that direction. Um, and I was able to kind of draw out from them, was like, well, what is it that you do need? And they were like, well, after the 2011 floods, uh, we did a girls' night in. And what the women of this town really need is a party. They really need to be able to um, put down the buckets and the sponges and the children and the, uh, and the looking after the husbands. And they really need to be able to come together and just come back together as a community um, and um, remember how much they love each other and, uh, feel, and feel supported by each other. What we know in terms of the gendered impacts of women is that um, women carry the burden of care often. Uh, for a long time post-flood recovery. Now, the women in Rochester are still dealing with, you know, the fact that their houses have not been rebuilt yet. But in even in other communities, like when the flood impacts weren't quite as drastic, the, the, the burden of care, so you've got the initial... Um, You've got the initial experience of disaster where it's everybody's on, everyone's on. There's often men go into kind of those um, very high danger roles of getting people out of buildings or... Um, in a flood disaster situation, um, floating people out of buildings or rescuing animals and 
um, trying to rescue as much property as possible, uh, but people come first. Um, and men being in those situations can um, often experience PTSD post-disaster. And because of the way that men often don't go about help-seeking uh, and are that staunch man vibes, um, that can really have significant impacts in their home lives. So um, women end up carrying that for much longer beyond the disaster. So the houses are rebuilt, but we're still carrying that PTSD experience beyond way, way, way beyond that. Um, women often are the ones that end up looking after their elderly neighbours, their parents, their children. They're doing extra work at the school to help those things be rebuilt. The, there's just so many levels where and men absolutely do assist and help in those situations but often don't necessarily talk about their experiences and women often are a little bit more connected and will ask people so they carry the weight of asking and holding um, where people's mental health is as well so the Rochester was a great example and we took such a lot of learnings from that of um, let's not when we wouldn't, as a women's health organisation, want to do to a community, is always about doing with. Um, but hearing that from like one of the first conversation that we had in a flooded, impacted community, was able to really direct what we did next. And from that, uh, we thought, okay, what can we do to make sure that women are able to direct what they would like for their communities? And from that, we developed a community grants portal. Uh, which meant that we were able to um, fund $90,000 worth of projects across the region from you know $2,000 to $10,000 um, for activities that brought people together, that upskilled their understanding of how, to, um, how they can support one another in disaster, to connect, to do art, to, um, to have pampers, to go out for the day. There was lots of things that, and um, the reach of that is about 1,500 women that have been directly reached through that funding. Um, which, you know, is small when you consider how many women live in the region. But um, it was a really, uh, it's been really, really well received and is such a great way of being able to respond to women in disaster situations. It's like, well, what do you need? How can we support you as a community to rebuild and recover? So I'm really proud of that work. And one of the other things that we were able to do was partner with the local governments and um, offer gender and disaster training. So that was something is um, through um, GADOS Australia, Gender and Disaster Australia, and that training helps people that work for the uh, CFA or the SES or the CWA or um, also local government, whatever organisation that they are involved in, to really start considering um, gender before a disaster happens so those people can take that information back to their organisation and build that into their emergency management plans. So one of the impacts on disaster is if you evacuate a whole community to one place, for a school, for example, if you take everybody from the community to one place, you might unintentionally be putting um, women at risk of being in, or people at risk of being in a room with um, perpetrators of violence. Mm. So uh, that um, they have been trying very hard to avoid. So you, if you're not considering that in your initial stages, um, those things can happen. But if you're thinking about them beforehand, you can perhaps offer some alternatives. Yes. Again, at the start I said I was going to learn and <laughs> this is it. Now I know you did just mention that, you know, it was 1,500 women, small group, but, you know, as you've probably said as well, it that touches more people, you know. You know, having the, the matriarch of the family or, or that – that woman feel like, oh my gosh, I've just had that moment. I feel better. I'm in control. I'm back in 
it, locked it gives, in for a minute. <laughs> it gives you the it, when you feel connected to your community. Not only does you know when you're in a post disaster situation, um, lots of people have got this like oh, I've got to get out of here kind of mentality, but can't because you can't see house, and, no. <laughs> or you might be able to, but not for a while. So in terms of making people feel like their community is holding and supporting them, that's really important. Um, there was about two hundred and fifty women came to the Rochester Girls' Night in. And um, it was covered in fairy lights and there was beautiful uh, grazing platters and there was just these little groups of women that were sat around. There was a bus that was organised for the women that had had to move out of their communities down to Elmore. And they, it was such a beautiful moment when they all kind of stepped off the bus. Everybody looked really beautiful. And you could see people cheering that their friends had come back. And one lady, um, it was her first night back in town, she'd been living around with her grandchildren who were scattered across Victoria and it was her first day back in town and she got to come and just be with her friends and her community and she said this is the best way that I could have possibly reintegrated to my community yeah and it was such yeah it was beautiful so because those small towns it is we say community but it's like their family yeah they're totally. so connected to those you know your next door neighbor well and truly and whatever generation was after that so when we talk about somewhere like Rochester um, it's outside of a regional city uh, and I'll call Bendigo a regional city. It's, um, it is. It's, it's, it's big. <laughs> um, I got a uh, message from someone who's followed me uh, on Instagram for quite a while and I've talked about Bendigo and she's like, oh, I've, I've driven through um, and she's from Juni in New South Wales. She's like, it's really big. I'm like, well, in comparison to Juni, yeah, sure, it is. <laughs> Most places are. <laughs> um, but when we talk about those smaller, tiny towns, uh, there is that socialisation and, you know, that loneliness that, that comes with living there uh how do how do women connect back how do they ensure that their their mental health and well-being is is supported this is a really uh poignant question for right now um across regional um australia it's identified that social isolation and loneliness is one of the biggest um factors on mental health and well-being and there's a new model of care that's being developed. Um, it's developed in Europe and we're starting to see it. Um, it's been in Bendigo for a, a little while. Um, they're doing a trial in Mount Alexander of social prescription. So the idea of, behind social prescription is if you were to present to your GP and say you'll be a bit flat and a bit um, under the weather or lonely, or they might consider um, you being on the, a little bit depressed or experiencing anxiety. And sometimes um, you can be prescribed medication to help you deal with that. But the actual issue, if you get a prescription for something, not that I'm saying that medication doesn't work because it absolutely does, but we also need to deal with the problem, right? And if the problem is that people are lonely or people are ang ang anxious about connecting with their community, then that's not going to – then a prescription for a medical prescription might not, might, might not help that. It might give them the confidence – to get out and go and explore things, but it doesn't actually deal with the initial issue of people being isolated. So the idea behind social prescription is that it's a holistic model and that GPs could actually prescribe joining a dance class or joining a uh, walking group or joining a book club as a, if, you, if your doctor was to tell you to do something, um, then you might take it a little bit more seriously than your partner or your kid or your neighbor who's always, who's been making these suggestions, sometimes we can't hear it from those people or sometimes we don't have those people to make that suggestion. Sometimes we don't realise that actually what we need to do is get out of the house and actually being in nature or being aware of how we're feeling is actually the first step to making us feel a bit better. So 
Social prescription is underpinned by the five ways to well-being framework. And the five ways to well-being talks about the five key ways that is an international study. I think it's been studied in 160 countries that the five key things that we can all do to make ourselves, uh, if not maintain our mental health, then make steps towards improving our mental health. I think I've said that wrong. It's about maintaining your mental health and well-being because we can all, as we age or as life impacts on us, we can all experience anxiety and depression as we go, but we need to maintain our uh, mental health and well-being. And if we are feeling flat, the five key ways of um, being active, uh, so, you know, joining a dance class or going for that bushwalk, um, uh, being aware, so being aware of our own mental health and well-being and what we need to do to improve it. Um, learning is one, so um, listening to podcasts, um, joining the, um, we've got a free university in Castlemaine, I just saw, oh, um, the UAE, or there's lots of different ways that we can all learn um, and trying to learn something every day. Um, giving, so giving your time and your energy, uh, and that could be through volunteering, um, it could be through making donations to um, an organisation that you believe in. Um, there's lots of different ways. Or it could just be, you know, making the time to talk to your neighbour um, who you don't, who doesn't have a connection, or you don't have a connection with. Um, and the last one is connection. And connection's probably one of the biggest ones because if we don't feel um, socially connected, we feel isolated. So. Social prescriptions are really, um, I love social prescription because it's something that we all naturally do with one another. And the idea is that it is holistic. So you could be prescribed by your GP, but in the same way you could be prescribed by your neighbour as well. And the model of social prescription means that people that um, can get referred to a program and then they have a little bit of warm up help in terms of if you know that community lunch happens every Tuesday, but you don't want to go on your own. So the first time or the second time, then maybe the, the you'll be kind of prescribed by your GP or by an allied health professional to this program. And then someone will go with you, will find out your interests and go, actually, community lunch would be great for you or the chatty cafe would be great for you or the walking group would be great for you. And they might take you along for the first one if you need that initial help with the idea that you are empowered to build your own connections through that experience. So as I said, Regional and rural populations are um, at significantly higher um, pr propensity of experiencing um, social isolation because they are physically isolated. But what we also find out is there's lots of stuff happening within each town. So if you're experiencing social isolation or you're feeling lonely or anxious, your community houses are really good places to start. Uh, they will be able to tell you, you know, what's on in town, what's coming up, um, different events that you might be able to connect with. Um, your community health service often will run physical exercise programs. Um, your local, if you've got a pool or a gym, um, they will be able to um, direct you to the kind of classes that they've got on. So if you don't have a social prescription program in your town, you can still kind of self-prescribe yourself. Mm -hmm. And really being aware of those five ways to well-being can just give you a bit of a level of like, well, am I a bit socially isolated or am I not really doing any, uh, not doing any learning. Um, 
those kind of things. And then you can start to think about how you can improve your own mental health and well-being. Yeah, I love those five. I mean, there's, it's just that little reminder for anyone too, just yeah. to make sure we've got that beautiful balance. Um, and I've worked uh, with some community houses and I know that one, they have a bus that will go to, say, um, a theatre company or a movie night or something and they're there to support you, so a buddy system. So you can go by yourself. Absolutely. And you've got a buddy and, yeah. you know, you're having that, that you know, experience of – getting out of the house, dressing up, feeling good, connecting, conversation, support. there are so many people in exactly the same boat. If all of the people that were feeling lonely went out and went to community lunch and started talking to each other, you know, that would be a really good step forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because everybody has very similar experiences and we all feel a little bit of social anxiety, you know. So it's not not unusual to feel like that, Um, but you feel... Uh, I think that the sense of um, well-being that you get, even just through trying things, uh, it might not be that 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 particular activity is the right one for you. But you know, keep trying and keep see trying. What it is. Yes. Yeah. Now we're not saying that um, if you have a partner, you aren't lonely. Yeah. No, that is right because people have this expectation that if you've got a family around you, then why would on earth would you be lonely? But nobody knows what goes on in people's front rooms, and if people are just you know sitting next to each other, you can be sitting next to be on the couch. And not talking to each other, just looking at the telly or looking at your phones. Um, and so there's this expect, this understanding that we have of people, uh, it's incorrect understanding that we have of people that are in partnerships not being lonely. And I heard a phrase yesterday, and I can't remember who said it, but it was around, um, you can be surrounded by people and still feel alone or be in the middle of nowhere and not feel lonely because you're comfortable, more comfortable with yourself. So... We shouldn't make um, judgments on what people were doing. And in terms of the gender lens, it, women are have been proven over the years that um, we'll put our own health and well-being last. So you look after your partner or you look after your kids and you look after your parents and you're doing all of these things, but actually looking after your own health and well-being comes last of the list. If you think about, you know, you've read stories about women in wartime who fed, who eats last it's the women in the house, so the, kid, the husband gets fed, the kids get fed, and then the women sometimes gets fed, um, or you know has a smaller portion. Or there's, and these things continue to this day, um, and um, so it's really important if you're going to be in a position of care for other people that you also look after yourself. Because if you don't look after yourself, who's going to be able to look after those people when you burn out? So it's not about not doing the caring. It's just making sure that you're looking after yourself too. The airlines are onto a good thing. Put your oxygen mask on first. Exactly. Yeah. I, I talked to my husband about this. I said, I, you know, I'll put mine on first. And he's like, well, I'm going to save the kids. And I'm <laughs> like, where am I on this list? Just remind me not to sit near you if we're on a flight together. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'd actually be really interested, not that I want to see people in plane crash situations, but I'd be really interested to understand if that actually works in practice if people do put their own air masks on first because we're so um taught to you know look after other other people people beforehand so i'd be really interested to know if that actually works as a um or that's probably why they have to say it because people have been conking out. And because it looks selfish to look after yourself first. It does. It isn't. And is that a cultural thing as well? Well, you know, that's very selfish of you to be looking after yourself. I guess it's it's around um, extremes, isn't it? Um, we can all do a little bit of self-care whilst we're looking after I know. We're, we're just from zero to 100. There's nothing in between there. A little bit of a change of gears, uh, but into another really important topic 
that I am so interested in ever since I've heard this statistic, uh, the huge increase of older women experiencing homelessness. Um, and when they do, because of their, say, their marriage breakdown or they've cared for their kids at home. So that whole superannuation thing, again, our financial literacy, whole nother podcast uh, on why it's important for us to, to earn money and, and have our own money and it is, get um, super. It is a whole nother podcast, but oh. I would encourage any uh, woman or anybody listening to make sure that they do understand the financial literacy around their relationships because many people are like, oh, you you deal with the money and I'll deal with the house or you deal with the, you know, you're bringing in the income or, and it, that's changing. But um, if, you know, as a woman, if you have taken five to seven years out of your career to raise your kids before you've gone back to work, for some people that's longer, for some people that's a lot less now, but that's going to impact on your superannuation. So they're starting to understand that now and that those things are being considered in settlements now, but they haven't necessarily been set, been considered and they're not always considered. Um, you've really got to ask for what you, 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 do. Yeah. For what you want. Yeah. We were talking about um, homelessness being um, one of the biggest challenges for women, particularly in the 55 plus age group, because they have had, you know, they are a, a generation of women that might not have had superannuation. And the economic situation that we find ourselves in, cost of living, um, rental prices, um, mortgage prices, it's also very difficult to get a mortgage for yourself beyond uh, once you're over 50. So it's a real sticky issue. And unfortunately, we don't have the, um, the, we don't have the solutions to it yet. Uh, I think that they're making some moves towards um, you know, affordable housing. They're trying to increase social housing quotas. Um, but it's it's way behind. Um, we need to invest, and that's just one small portion of society. Um, people with a disability, um, people with in experiencing mental health, these have all been on wait lists for social housing for a really, really long time. Um, and you know, having safe, how can you look at? You can't be expected to look after your mental health and well-being if you don't know where you're going to live, mm. if you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight. It's um, you know, so the things like the five ways to well-being are brilliant if you are in a place of safety where you can look after your mental health well-being because you know where you're going to sleep and you know that you've got money for food and you know that you can access uh, health care if you need it. But if you don't have somewhere to live, that creates uncertainty around all of those other things. You can't be expected to be looking after your own mental health and well-being and going for a nice walk yeah. <laughs> um, if those key um, human rights aren't, um, aren't met. So, And it's why some women probably stay in a relationship that isn't healthy for them because it must be overwhelming for them to think, well, if I leave, where, where am I going to stay? How am I going to clothe myself? How am I going to look I've, after my kids? How, 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 why, where's the support? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's huge. So um, there's there are more supports coming um, becoming available, and I would encourage any woman in a uh, that's experiencing a, a family violence situation to go check out the Orange Door. That's the first a good port of call for finding out what supports um, do exist. Um, there's that's probably the the first point. Um, but also just know that you're not alone, um, and you know there, there are supports out there. But it is hard yeah. <laughs> it's undoubtedly hard like I have four kids uh so taking time out of work and then starting my own business and that again that financial literacy of not realizing well no one's paying my super that's actually my job now as a business owner so I've looked at my super 
and I know and I'm like oh my gosh like and you know I'm just ticked over 40 and even I'm I'm starting to think about like grown-up things it feels like super like how am I going to survive in 20 years time like what am I going to have um you know and and for say your partner just to go it's okay I've got super well no <laughs> I want my own money yeah. yeah I want my own money yeah I'm so like- even just <laughs> <laughs> educating yourself and um, if you've started your own business that it, you know you do need to pay yourself super and it's it's something that probably feels really hard at the moment every time you, you bring in an invoice uh, but again it's it's future proofing Absolutely. And we live much more in, you know, contract based um, work. I mean, obviously, if you're working for an organisation, there's some obligations for them to pay your super, but you really do need to be thinking about what your future looks like. And it isn't, you know, you might, your partner might be also might be like a tradie, like um, they don't, you know, I don't think many of them are paying themselves super. Mm. So I said, they're certainly not in my house. So, oh, as um, I said, they feel like really grown-up conversations, grown and I'm up like, oh, hang on, I'm at that. I'm a grown-up now. I need to think about this. It turns out we've been grown-ups for a little while. <laughs> we probably should have been thinking it a little bit earlier. But yes, um, yeah. So, I would really encourage, in terms of you know your your mental health and well-being, um, financial stability certainly, um, your financial instability certainly impacts on that. So, do take a bit of a financial health check for yourself. What does that look like if you're you know, what does it look like for you now? And what does it look like if your situation changes? Yeah. And in terms of the website for Women's Health Lodden Mallee, yeah. lots of resources on there? Yeah, loads of resources on there. Um, you can find us at whlm.org.au. If you're interested in the 16 Days of Activism, there's a great toolkit on there, um, which we are really um, encouraging people to adopt and, and, and raise awareness for. We put up our podcasts when we do podcasts. Um, yeah, any, any resources and information that you want. If you had an ask... What would it be? I think if I had one ask, it would be that if you are aware that your mental health isn't as good as it could be, um, that you start exploring ways that you can um, support yourself as well as get along to your GP and let them know that that's what's happening for you. It is really a holistic approach. So, you know, one thing might not be the answer, but if you start doing a few things, you might notice a real difference. So, yeah, being that, that being aware... Um, and I'd also just like everybody just to think, I know you said one, but I'm asking for two, um, that um, just check in with the people that are around you because we never know what's going on for anybody. They're great asks, great advice. I want to thank you for joining us, but also your special guest uh, who is down <laughs> on the floor, your four-legged friend that has joined us. <laughs> a couple of snores during the uh, recording. Yeah, you might pick it. You might have to edit out a few snores. Um, but actually, she's one of the um, biggest influences on my mental health and well-being because I get out of the house every day more than once, at least three times a day, uh, going for a walk. Um, and she connects me to other people. Um, she, you know, she comes and gives me a, a snuffle if I'm, uh, I'm feeling a bit sad. I think she probably does. Uh, I learned a lot about being a dog owner when I got her. Um, and she just gives dogs have just got these beautiful big hearts. So like, she really is the, um, five ways to wellbeing in one fluffy bundle. Well, thank you for joining for both of you for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a review via our socials or connecting with us online at bbendigo.com.au.